I think I'm ready. I'm not quite sure how we're going to open, but uh, we'll, we'll give this a go. Let's see. I've got your notes. Happy birthday there. to you. Hey, you know what? That's no longer copyrighted. We could use that. In fact, I'll probably open with that. Listeners, that was the the uh, the melodic voice of Kenny, the man behind the famous Monsters of Filmland segment that we do here on the show. Kenny is, I mean, one of my dear friends and a huge fan of Harryhausen and really kind of the driving force behind us doing a special Ray Harryhausen centennial episode. It's 100 years, right? That is correct. If he was still around, he would be 100 years old. So the Harryhausen Foundation and all Harryhausen fans are all celebrating. So I'm glad Monster Kid Radio is joining along with the party. That's right. We, we have to. We have to celebrate this man because he's given us so much. He's no longer with us, but his creations are and are going to be with us for a very long time because they are timeless. They hold up so much better than any computer effect. You look at CGI from like 10 years ago and you can tell it's already dated. You look at Guanji, it looks gorgeous still. And like he said, it's like that perfection that you can get with computer, it takes away the magic. But stop motion animation of anything there's a quality to it that he calls it a nightmare quality or just like a it's like it's otherworldly hmm. that 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 you cannot really copy with cgi and if you make things so perfect when everything in a movie is an effect it's not special anymore but harryhausen's work is always special and then when you understand what he did to put that on screen when you get into the nitty-gritty of how much patience and how much how difficult it was every little effect and how much detail he put into that then you can appreciate it even more it's like he didn't want to tell his secrets for years but now that they've come out and you see exactly what he had to do to get this done by himself oftentimes in that little studio for for a year at a time for a movie it makes it even more something to appreciate the work that he did and, and it's 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 fascinating and i've been a harryhausen fan since uh, as a young boy i was a dinosaur fan first my first harryhausen merchandise was the valley of guanji uh coloring book in the animal world uh dinosaurs were on a gaf Viewmaster, and why wow. I, I, I had not even seen the movies and i but i had harryhausen stuff that gaf Viewmaster. The dinosaurs in there were featured in my first Famous Monsters, Famous Monsters number 94. And I picked that up and they had an article about those dinosaurs. And I realized, oh, this is the guy that made those dinosaurs. And I called him Ray Harrison. So I just, <laughs> a friend had to correct me. I remember this very distinctly. My best monster kid friend said, it's not Harrison, it's Harry Housen. Oh, and today... To celebrate his birthday, I've asked you, and I've been asking for a long time, and we finally are going to look at one of my favorites, my first Harryhausen film to see, first run in the movie theaters when it came out, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad.
see the sorcerer of the black arts. The gold helmet faceless vizier. The death fight of the centaur on the griffin. The six-armed goddess of evil. The flying homunculus. Savage siren on a rampage. The duel with the vanishing sorcerer. <laughs> the one eyed centaur. The Fountain of Destiny. was thinking about doing this you know the first thing you go to is the monsters because it's monster kid radio here he has it does his creatures he calls them and there's five creatures and bing 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 i thought of the classic five and i thought wait wait a minute wait a minute there's there's all kinds of fives in this uh in this movie and so i put together some notes and we're going to talk about the classic five of the golden voyage of sinbad now the golden voyage of sinbad harryhausen did a lot of sinbad he, he really liked the fairy tales he liked the mythology and mm -hmm. i feel like he was drawn to the sinbad story a lot because this is not the only time he did a sinbad tale this is like the second or third time isn't it well this was the second one he did the seventh voyage of sinbad in 1958 mm -hmm. And he was all about legends and myths. Fate and destiny uh, were common themes. When he first started, it was during the Monster on the Loose phase. And he really basically started it with Beast from the 20,000 Fathoms and, is, and kept doing that for a number of films. He did Flying Saucers. He did Aliens. He did uh, Octopus. But he wanted to do get that. And, he, and I think part of it, and, and I read a couple places that he was inspired to do this film and probably Seventh Voyage Sinbad by the Thief of Baghdad, Alexander Corda's version of that, um, which was released in 1940, that the, the fantasy aspect, the myths, the the legends, and he did that when he started with Seventh Voyage Sinbad, and then he went into he would do some science fiction with like Mysterious Island, First Men in the Moon, he do the dinosaur thing. But he also threw in some mythology with Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans, and he did three Sinbad films. So this is his second one, and he had ideas to do more. He wanted to do Sinbad on Mars, but that never came about. But <laughs> I've never heard that. Sinbad on Mars? How would that yes. work? 
Yeah, well, it was kind of uh, taking John Carter from Mars, but because Sinbad was a good property for them, he was going to put Sinbad on Mars. <laughs> that that would have been amazing. It, I wonder, is there like a treatment out there, or probably not a screenplay, but just something that says what that story would have been like? So I would love to see Harryhausen go back to doing outer space stuff. Well, Blue Water Comics, they did the comic book version of it. Really? That was, that was licensed by, that they licensed from Harryhausen. He was involved in it somewhat. They did sequels to a number of his movies, and one of the I think he they did one on Sinbad on Mars. They stopped doing that after a while, but they had a pretty good run on a couple, you know, taking like sequels from his movies or ideas from his movies. So, but that was one of them, Sinbad on Mars. Yeah, the only thing I know about Blue Water is that they did a, a comic book adaptation of Plan Nine from Outer Space, that was like intentionally messed up. The art panels looked like they were not straight and like there'd be typos and all that because they wanted to reflect the film. Um, but I didn't know they did some Harryhausen stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. And I think sometimes I, I lump Jason and the Argonauts in with the Sinbad stories just because mm -hmm. of the era, you know, the kind of same milieu, I guess, or genre. Three Worlds of Gulliver is kind of a fantasy. Yeah. And then, and then Seventh Voyage, Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of Titans, and Golden Voyage. Those are like his fantasy films. His other films like Guanji and One Million Years B.C., First Man in the Moon, Mysterious Island, those are like science fiction. And his early films were science fiction. So he had a combination. Yeah. And sometimes it was what he wanted to do. And sometimes it was what was going to make money. The third Sinbad movie is considered not the best of movies. His work in it is fantastic. But the movie itself is not that good and it's basically a copy of this movie the story is basically the same and and everywhere you say it's like well they they wanted more money golden voyage is in bad work so columbia said do another one you know <laughs> do another one and they did one quicker didn't come out as nice but it made money but sometimes that's what what their thing was is what what's going to work like they did first men in the moon because the space race was a big deal so they did that and of course all his early science fiction films were during that atomic phase. So for me, the first Harryhausen film that I saw on the big screen was the last. I didn't see any of them until Clash of the Titans. And I know that he wasn't as involved in that as he was some of the others, but he still had that Harryhausen touch. That movie poster, and I think I've discussed this on the show before, that movie poster scared me, gave me nightmares. I would dream about the Medusa coming out of the uh, movie poster and coming after me. So of course mm -hmm. I had to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I did and I loved it you know I just Pegasus is what stood out to me yeah there's some great monsters in it but for whatever reason I was obsessed with that Pegasus just mm -hmm. there was something about it that was just magical the way that it moved and now of course I've gone back and watched all the others and every once in a while somebody around here will show one on the big screen and I'll go see it but yeah for the most part the only real first run experience I have is Clash of the Titans I've seen some of them on TV without really knowing what they were when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I saw it was either Jason or the Argonauts or at least part of it or one of the Sinbad movies when I was a kid and just didn't really connect that that's what it was. I just thought the skeletons were cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've gone back since and, and watched so many of them. And, and he is, you're right about how he kind of followed what was, I don't want to say trendy, but. You know, during the sci-fi atomic stuff, he was doing Earth versus the Flying Saucers, right? Or right. 20 million miles to Earth kind of bridges that to like the big monster stuff with the dinosaurs and all that. He worked with Hammer, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. He did some Hammer work. Just so many incredible films and creatures. These aren't monsters. These aren't special effects. These are practically living, breathing things. 
he was very uh, detailed oriented and he really studied like if any creature that he did he tried to study similar creatures if they were fantastic creatures like we see a lot of fantastic creatures in this movie some of his movies they were basically giant versions of real animals like in mysterious island you had a crab and a bee and all that but he'd really study and he'd really make sure that he was capturing and if it was something that could have personality he would have personality in it you would see that he wasn't just moving a creature just to move a creature he was really thinking about what it looked like you know how it was going to feel and the fact that he's doing that one frame at a time that's it's just it's, it's, it's awe-inspiring what he was able to do he made it look easy you would think oh that can't be that hard if you've ever tried doing stop motion animation and i did i was i was so into it that i thought i wanted to be one and I tried it, and it's like, no, this is not for me. <laughs> it's the patience <laughs> that you have to have. And I would make a stop motion movie and with eight millimeter, and you're supposed to run that at 18 frames per second. But my animation was so bad, I had to run mine at like six frames per second, so it wouldn't look. Oh no! You know, <laughs> too bad. <laughs> so it's fantastic, and his the creatures that he created, you know, just leave a mark uh, in mm -hmm. your mind and your soul. Is the and you see his personality coming through. You see his imagination coming through what he does. Sure. Yeah, and, and I don't talk about this much on the show. When we first moved here to Portland, Oregon, I did a year at the Art Institute of Portland, and my program was I was getting into the uh, computer effects side of things, animation specifically, because I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could figure out how to do computer animation with my makeup effects background and blend the two? I never finished that program, but I did take a bunch of animation courses. And one of the things that we had to do was a, like a paper animation. It would look like the style of like South Park where it's pieces of paper moving around and all that. Mm -hmm. And just doing that was so tedious. Just moving pieces of paper around. Can you imagine moving something around made out of clay or, or whatever it was? Just, man, just I so much respect for what he did. And I probably don't even understand the depth of how much work went into it. Just my limited experience. Mm -hmm. Insane amount of work. The uh, modern animators movies that come out today, they're fascinating. And the, and the amount of work that goes into them, it's incredible. But they always have everything is animated. Everything is a set. Everything is there. Tedious, yes. But what Harryhausen did was the combination and you're not seeing yeah. that with stop motion animation anymore, where you're combining live action with the monster, with the creature. The processes he had to do to make that work were also, you know, he was inventing stuff all the time to make that happen, where you're combining live people, live action with a stop motion creature. That's something you don't see anymore, you know, with all the CG. They've made it too easy. Of course, it's easy when you have a thousand people working on the movie. <laughs> you know, or, yeah, that's true. You, that's true. But you lose the personality. Why Why aren't people as excited about these CG movies, just one after the other after the other? Why can't they get us excited? Because there's no personality to it. There's no. It's not one person bringing life to a creature. It's a thousand people moving pixels around. Yeah, it's, it's a very, like, factory-driven uh, vibe that I get, you know, and, and yeah, I'm sure they're written well, or I, I guess they are written well, and, and yeah, they do well, but 
I don't get excited about the newest Pixar film because they all kind of start looking samey to me. Mm-hmm. You know, when DreamWorks does something, it doesn't really grab me. Uh, the stop motion studio I think you were referring to is Leica. Yes, uh, yes. And they're up here in Portland. And they do amazing work. They really do. But you're right. They don't combine with the live action. I think the closest that we get to anything combining stop motion or, or CG animation with live action might be like the Lego movie or the Lego movie 2. But even those scenes were kind of gimmicky. And it kind of lend itself to that because, yeah, whatever. <laughs> There's nothing like a Harryhausen film. Yeah. It is just so amazing to know that some dude was sitting around in a studio for hours on end, probably on his hands and knees, making sure just the right pieces were moved just the right way, hitting click on the camera, and then doing it again and yeah. again and again. And wow, just the amount of work, the amount of work involved in that. The concentration needed because if you make a mistake, you could ruin a whole day's work. You know? Oh, yeah. I read an anecdote today where at one point he was uh, doing a painting and he got frustrated at something and he threw a hammer down and that hammer bounced up and jumped up to the painting, which was on glass, and it just shattered a painting that he had been working on for a week. And he learned then, I got to watch my temper. And that's he's always, he's always known as a cool very calm, very temperate person, very nice person, because he learned to hold back his temper. Because if you do some dumb thing like that, you can ruin you know, a lot of work that you've put into something. So for this film, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, it's a 70s movie, which, you know, we've expanded the definition of classic here on the, on the show. So I, I have no problem diving into it. Plus, Harryhausen's always got a place here on MKR. Doesn't matter. Always going to have a home here. And you know me, I've been trying to get you to push that envelope. And you've done it quite a few times, yeah. enough times to realize that you are doing it. Because like Harryhausen, like Bird Eye Gordon, even William Castle made films in the 70s. And, they, and sure. they have a classic feel to them. In the age group that you're looking at, or like my age, I was seeing those movies in the theater. And I was reading Famous Monsters. I'm like, a, I call myself a second generation monster kid. I wasn't in the shock package group of monster kids that started in the late 50s early 60s but my monster kid started in the 70s and they were reaching out those studios were reaching out to us because they were putting out pretty regular double features of good science fiction decent monster movies pg movies Mm -hmm. um Sometimes surprisingly, PG, you got you covered one on Monster Kid Radio, The Devil's Reign. <laughs> Couldn't believe that it was PG. And this really fits into the wheelhouse of uh, Monster Kid Radio, even being in the 70s, because it has that classic story and a classic feel. And, and, it, and it was a G-rated film. I mean, he had ideas that they wanted to do different scenes, but that might have pushed it over into the PG and they said, no, we don't want that. We wanted to keep it family friendly. So it does have that classic clean feel that we see in the classic films that we love. It's an adventure movie that the entire family can enjoy together. There, there's really nothing objectionable to it, despite coming out in the early 70s when so much of the genre was going toward grindhouse, drive-in exploitation. Here's Harryhausen making this piece of art, which, I mean, his films are. They're, they're pieces of art. Uh, as far as this film goes, I, I've only seen it a couple of times. I don't mm-hmm. have a lot of experience with it. How much do you want to get into the story of this thing? Or do you just want to break down your classic five list, which I love, by the way? The classic five 
plot points. So I don't. Was the story simple and easy? Not get too much into it, just so the people that perhaps have not seen the movie get an idea what it's about. The first point is that fate brings mysterious amulet to the sailor adventurer Sinbad. Then fate leads Sinbad to the home of the rightful owner, the Vizier, where they discover it is part of a map to a fabulous treasure. Sinbad and his crew head for the treasure with an evil magician in hot pursuit. The fourth classic five plot point is they battle magical monsters and a tribe of green men on their way to the goal, the fountain of destiny. And then the fifth plot point, spoiler alert, <laughs> Sinbad encounters and battles the evil magician and wins a crown for the visitor. It's a basic story. It's a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. the, the interesting thing about it, some hero's journey, the hero has changes, but basically Sinbad is there to move the story along. He doesn't really change. There isn't a lot of change in the movie. It's basically an adventure film. A lot of the, like the amulet and a lot of the plot points are basically MacGuffins. You know, Harry Housen was very adamant to say that I'm not here just to make a creature film, you know, just to, to, to tie a bunch of creatures together. He was really interested in the story. The story is good. It's simple. It's legendary. It's something that you could probably read in the Arabian Nights or in the Greek mythology. It's, it's a basic adventure story. But that, that leads to all the fantastic imagery and fantastic things that Harryhausen does. These are based, you can definitely tell they're based on the myths. You know, he was very much, I like the legends, I like the myths. And if you look at a lot of the myths and the old stories, the characters don't change very much. The myths were, and the legends were really there to help people understand the world more than anything else. And you, know, you don't have to have a character that goes on this deep, extensive character arc. He's there to to have an adventure with us and you could come along for the ride and explore the world through his eyes. And it's just, it shows so much in this. And that's one of the things that's great about these movies is they're, they're entertaining. They're fun. They're not there to try to preach to you or try to get you to do something or feel something or change your mind about something. They're just there for entertainment. And he was all about that as well. He wanted to entertain the people. That's the basic story. So why don't we take a look at the classic five actors? I love that you broke this up into five <laughs> chunks of five. It's awesome. The classic five actors you want to mention? I go from uh, five, four, three, two, one, from like uh, Monster Kid Importance. Okay. Okay. So uh, number five is Douglas Wilmer. He played the Vizier. He was also in Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts. And I always like thinking about all the actors that played in at least two Harryhausen movies, and he's one of them. Um, he was the evil Pelias, the bad guy in the movie. He wasn't in the movie a long time. He didn't have any encounters with monsters. Now, this role for him was kind of interesting because he, he wasn't seen until the very end of the movie. He was in a mask the entire movie, a golden mask the entire movie. But he was game, and he did a good job. Um, you might recognize him. If you like the uh, Fu Manchu series, he played Nayland Smith in a couple of those. And he was also with Ingrid Pitt in Vampire Lovers. So that's Douglas Wilmer. Number four, Robert Shaw. Now, he was not credited in the movie, but it is known that he played the Oracle in the movie. If you're familiar with it, it was Oracle. It was a, a floating head, very made up. You could cannot recognize it but it is Robert Shaw. Who's Robert Shaw? 
So he was the Bond villain in From Russia With Love, the second James Bond movie. And he was Quint in Jaws. Very, very, very famous role for him. He was in other, other movies people might know, but those are the most famous that I'm familiar with him. And I was actually surprised. I recently learned about him being the Oracle in Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Number three, Tom Baker. Now, they originally wanted to get Christopher Lee. Oh, my that goodness. Worked out. That, that would be good. Tom Baker, when he made this, was unknown. Do you know what he's famous for? Who? Who are you talking about? Who? <laughs> yes, you're right. Doctor Who. Now, <laughs> he is probably the most recognizable Doctor Who. I am not a Who fan, but I know Who fans out there, they know who Tom Baker is. He's the most famous. He's the one with the kind of... He's the guy with the scarf, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he was got that role because of his performance in this movie. Oh, Okay. The interesting thing about his performance here, uh, we see his eyes a lot, and that's kind of what captured the attention of the the Who makers, that he had very expressive eyes. He was a bad guy in this movie, but he had an interesting range in the role because he became an old man. Because every time he did uh, magic, he would age. So, um, so he had a, he had a very interesting role, and he showed himself he was unknown, and then he became very famous because he was Doctor Who. Number two, of course, we have to talk about Sinbad, John Philip Law. Oh, sure. When you look at the three Harryhausen Sinbads, you have Kerwin Matthews in Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, you have John Philip Law here, and then uh, Patrick Wayne in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. I think that John Philip Law is really the best Sinbad. He was good looking for the ladies. I think he did a pretty good fake Eastern... Middle Eastern accent. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't know. You know, I don't know if other people might think it was bad or it was offensive or something. And he, he just had the look. And then there was there was a couple scenes where he's kind of got that sarcastic, a little bit of an arrogant type Sinbad. Like at the very end, where he's gonna he's confronting the bad guy, and he's like, "Yeah." <laughs> I, I just thought he was very good. He just had he had the look, and he used that turban the whole time, most of the time, and I thought it was a good look for Sinbad. Now, for us fans, Monster Kid fans, genre fans, we'll probably recognize him also from Barbarella. And <laughs> for us Euro spy fans, Danger Diabolic, he was in that one as well. He was the main character in that movie. Of course, my number one for the classic five actors is the female star of this film, Caroline Monroe. Now, we all know her from Dracula AD 72, Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter, you know, Star Crash, At the Earth's Core. Uh, she did quite a few movies. Uh, beautiful model. Beautiful. And House of the Gorgon. Very uh, loves her fans. Comes mm -hmm. to conventions. I first met her in 1979. She was 30 years old. And she was still making movies. It was in 1979, so she still had Star Crash coming up and Maniac and the last uh, horror movie coming up. So she was still acting, and she came to Pittsburgh, and she was beautiful. When you see her in person, and she's beautiful today. She still comes to the conventions. I've met her four or five times afterwards. I had an interesting experience the last Monster Bash that she went to, and I was there as well. When uh, the Monster Bash was done, I was getting on the airplane. She was right in front of me to go through the uh, security guys. An interesting thing about that is she had bracelets 
and they were like bracelets. And she told the security guys she could not take them off. And they were one you have to take them off. I and she's like, I've had these on since I was a kid. They do not come off. <laughs> oh no. And so she had an interesting time and I got to see all that. It was but she's the nicest lady in the world. The thing about her role in this movie is it's not very good. When you yeah. compare them, when you compare it to other Harryhausen girls, just let's just take a look at the one before and the one after this movie. For example, in Valley of Kawanji, the film before this one, the main actress, uh, Gilly Golan, the role, I mean, she was a, a cowgirl and she, and she had a, a good speaking role. She, her voice was not used, just as Caroline Monroe's voice was not used in this film. But she had a good role and it was a meaty role and she was, you know, she was tough. She was riding horses and jumping off of platforms and stuff like that. In the next Sinbad film, we had two female parts, Taryn Power and Jane Seymour. And again, much meatier roles, much more involved in the plot, much more speaking. And, and, and they weren't just damsels in distress. But basically in this film, she's basically given to Sinbad kind of like a slave. She kind of takes that role. She realized that he falls in love with her, but there's just not a lot going on there. She doesn't have a lot to say, and it's obvious it's not Caroline's voice. They dubbed her, and they kind of pushed a little bit the limits of G-rating there with her costumes. <laughs> Are we complaining, though, Kenny? I mean... And of course not. <laughs> <laughs> now, she is uh, scheduled to be at Monster Bash 2021. And that'd be fantastic if we get to go to that and see her again. And she's a lovely lady. And she has kind of been an ambassador for the Harryhausen Foundation. Her role in this film wasn't very large. She only in, she only had really uh, an encounter with one of the creatures. The other creatures, you don't really see her reacting that much to. Um, this, but she was involved with the centaur in this film. Um, but she realizes that the fans loved her in this movie and she has been like an ambassador for the foundation she's part of the foundation and she does introductions for the books she goes to all their events and she loved working with Harryhausen and was a friend of Harryhausen in his retirement days so we all love Caroline Monroe she's a monster kid for sure oh yeah all right so let's go with on here with our classic five. I gotta do that. I gotta do that for Steve Sullivan. I know he wants to be here. He's a super Harry Housen fan too. I didn't and even I tell he... him we were doing this, so <laughs> he'll find out. He'll be surprised. So but let's look at the classic five crew. You okay. know, we we talk about Harry Housen. He's the main man in these movies, but this is a complete movie. And there's a lot to watch when you watch it over and over again, you start noticing going beyond the effects, beyond the story, and seeing some of the details. And uh, you realize that you know there was, there was a lot of talent behind the other aspects of this film. So the first thing I want to talk about is the makeup guy. The makeup guy is a guy named Jose Antonio Sanchez. He's from Spain. And I looked, to, I looked him up on IMDb, and he had 81 credits. I was surprised because I'd never heard of him before. But mostly, you know, main normal type of movies where you know makeup is not the main thing you know it's not like he's doing a rick baker type effects and all that but he does he did do conan the barbarian and he also did the jack nicholson werewolf movie wolf so he has oh, done wow. some, okay you know does he has some cred but his work in this movie again you might wouldn't notice it that much but i wanted to highlight him 
because I recently got the Blu-ray for this movie. It was a couple years ago I had the, uh, the Blu-ray. I watched it on a big screen. My brother had like a, a man cave, and he had a big screen and a big projector. So it's like, oh, I just got this at Monster Basket, and I watched this on your big screen. He goes, yeah, put it on. And just to see the detail on the Blu-ray and the close-ups of the makeup on Tom Baker, because he ages in this film. And it is really, really well done. You don't see any seams. I was amazed and was like, you know what? I've never noticed this before. I've seen this movie many times, but I never noticed how good the makeup is. So next time you guys watch it, take a look at the makeup. Take a closer look and see how well Mr. Sanchez did on the makeup here. Let's go on to number four on the Classic Five crew, the director of photography, Ted Moore. Uh, Ted Moore... Uh, they had asked him, they said, we don't want this to look like Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. If you look at this movie, you'll kind of see it like the muted tones, the colors, are, they're not bright and shiny and garish. This is more muted. And that's what they wanted. They wanted it to be more realistic. They were kind of playing into the 70s style. And that's what he gave them. And, uh, and Ted Moore, tons and tons of credits. He started work in 1955. Some of the more notable credits, one of his first films was The Gamma People. And then he did a lot of James Bond movies. He did all, the first four James Bond movies. Um, he skipped uh, You Only Live Twice and did On Her Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die. So many James Bond movies. And he also was the director of photography for Ray's last three films. So he did this film. He also did Sinbad and the Tiger and the famous Clash of the Titans. So he's straightforward. He does his job well. And it's imagine that he has to work with Ray, not only with the director, but with Ray as well, because he has to make sure that he's doing the plates and the and the, the background plates and everything. He has to make sure that they're well lit and everything for what Ray's work. So we appreciate the director of photography. The writer, number three, the writer, Brian Clemens. Uh, he's famous. He did a lot of uh, TV work, uh, British TV. He did a lot of stuff for the Avengers, one of my favorite shows. And we know him from his Hammer work, That's Dr. Right. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, mm -hmm. which is the uh, you know Martin Beeswick film. And then my second favorite Hammer film, because my favorite Hammer film is One Million Years B.C. I always struggle with the call it a hammer film because there's no vampires there's no gothic in it it's a bunch of cavemen running around but it is a hammer film so and that's my favorite but my second favorite hammer film captain crona's vampire he wrote and directed that film heck yeah and he did a good job here ray and is credited with the story along with brian clemens if you have the book animated life by ray harryhausen he talks about how his story was and then how brian clemens turned it around a little bit and then came up with the final script so uh, he did a good job with that, getting Ray's story uh, into a workable screenplay. Uh, the director, Gordon Hessler. Ray compliments uh, Gordon Hessler as being a director that understood what Ray was doing, let him direct his scenes. You know, when he when he did the scenes with the creatures in him, he did the direction of those scenes. Some of, some of Ray's directors, they would get uptight about that. But Gordon Hessler knew what the movie was about, and Ray complimented for him for that. He's he's known for some other classic films, uh, the Vincent Price, Scream and Scream Again, Cry of the Banshee. And then after this movie, he made a film that some folks from the 70s might know about, 
Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. Oh, no. (laughs) All right. Oh, no. Now, my number one classic five crew, and you can't have a good Harryhausen movie without good soundtrack music. And I know you love soundtracks. I love soundtracks. You can't have an episode of Monster Kid Radio without that happening. And the music where this movie was done by Miklos Rosa. It's interesting that he also did the music for the film that Ray said inspired him, some of the elements of this film, The Thief of Baghdad. He's also known for Ben-Hur and many, many other films. Yep. Now, the interesting thing about this score, they ran out of money. And when they put this score together, when they actually recorded it, he had to scale down the orchestra. He used the Rome Symphony Orchestra, but a scaled down version of it. So when you listen to it by itself, like on a soundtrack recording, it, it sounds muted. It sounds like there wasn't enough oomph to it. There's some very good parts of it, but the music itself is very good. I would just love for someday some symphony orchestra to take this music and do a full-blown concert with a full-blown orchestra because they couldn't do that for the movie because they just didn't have enough money. They ran out of money. There was not enough money in the budget to give a full orchestra. So if you listen to the music by itself, you get a sense it's like it seems kind of muted. It seems like there's not enough instruments, like it's a small scale in it, and that's mm. the case. He didn't write it for that. He, it, could, it'll, it would work for a bigger orchestra. But there are some very, very nice highlights, and the music is, for the most part, very, very good in this movie. One thing about Miklos Rosa, if you watch any of his other movies, he's very classic. He had a style. He had, he had different motifs that he used. You can always tell, oh, that's the same guy who did Golden Voyage of Sinbad. His music kind of sounds the same. He didn't have the versatility of a Bernard Herrmann who would change the instruments, who would really look at the movie and say, okay, I'm going to use all this instrument and cut out this instrument so it sounds like Greek mythology, so it sounds like Arabian Nights. Miklos Rosa, his music is basically the same in, the, in all of his movies, but it works for this movie, and, and, uh, and I really like it. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to the creature scenes. Sure. And that's what we're going to go to next. Oh, okay. <laughs> The classic five, and I got the classic five because there are five creatures in this film, and that's where we're going to take a look now. And again, we're going to do them least favorite to favorite, importance to non-importance. And I think few people uh, would argue against my ratings here. Maybe some people might, but I'm going to put number at number five, and this is the last creature that's introduced, and it is the griffin. The Griffin, which is the uh, half lion, half eagle. Basically, this creature is a cameo. It's not given much to do. It comes out, it fights, and dies. <laughs> I just read today that Ray didn't have him fly. He has wings, but he does not fly because it wouldn't have looked right. Any, any way he would have done it wouldn't have looked right. And it would have been a lot more time in the animation studio, of course, when you're dealing with wires and all that. It's a lot more time. Sure. Now, Ray wanted originally to have this be like a statue that was guarding the Fountain of Destiny, and that statue would come to life. He kind of does that in Sinbad the Eye of the Tiger with the uh, saber-toothed tiger in that movie. He decided that there wasn't time and uh, uh, budget to do that. So he just has it walking in, and that disappointed Ray. He didn't really want that um, to happen. Now, uh, number four on my list 
is the centaur, the cyclopean centaur. And we dig that David Bowie hairdo that he had. <laughs> now, originally, Ray had done drawings. He was going to do a caveman type. It was going to be like a cyclops. Hmm. But it was like, well, this is too much like my original cyclops. It's too much like a man in the suit. So he made it into a centaur. Now, these two monsters together, I do this thing. I did this for a creature from the Black Lagoon. I've done it for other Harry Housen movies for the B movie cast. But I, I did like a little analysis of the animation. The total amount of the animation for these two creatures together, sometimes the centaurs by himself and sometimes with the griffin, but they were on the screen animated four minutes and 23 seconds. That's 4% of the movie. There was 31 setups, and those 31 setups were divided into 73 shots. What does that mean? And this is something I found out when I was, I've taken out the animation scenes and edited them together without all the reaction shots and all the cuts. What you find out is that Ray Harryhausen would do a setup, and he would do an animation, and it would be one particular movement. But in the movie, it would be edited and cut up into different shots. And they would throw in a reaction shot of Sinbad waving his sword. Or there'd be a reaction shot of Caroline Monroe gasping. They would intermix different setup shots of the creature. But if you would take each setup and join them together, edit them together, you see that they was just like one solid motion. And you get the impression, just getting behind the scenes a little bit here, you get the impression that Ray would do a setup and then he would probably work to finish the motion that he was planning for that setup. Of course, everything was well-planned, storyboarded and everything. He knew exactly what he was doing, but he would make sure that that setup was complete. I would imagine if it was possible within a day for each setup. If not, he would have he would know there's going to be a reaction shot here because every single day you don't know how the lights are going to react. You don't know when he comes back and he turns the lights on if maybe the bulb has gone down a little bit and there's going to be a different little color change. And so that's not visible. He would have to do like a setup within a day. Now for like a more complex scene like the skeletons and Jason and the Argonauts, perhaps for the uh, one of the creatures here that we'll be talking about in just a moment, because of the complexity of it, he might have had to do a setup and maybe take it over a few days, but he would know there's going to be a cut here, and so if there's a little bit of a color change, it's not going to affect, people aren't going to notice it. Okay, so when I say there's setups, that means if you would take those setups, or okay, he set up the creature, he set up the background, whatever the people are doing in the background, and that would be a setup, and then that would be cut up into different shots. Okay, and then that's why there's 73 shots, 31 setups. So four minutes and 23 seconds, were the centaur and the griffin, 4% of the movie. Now, number three on my list. Now, this would be number one on Ray Harryhausen's list. It might be number one on some other people's list. But I put number three on my list is homunculus. homunculus. I okay. listened on the internet, and that's how they said it said. Homunculus. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. And that's the little creature that the, the magician makes that is used like his eyes and his ears. And this is a character that Ray had wanted to do. He had planned to do something like this for Three Worlds of Gulliver. Of course, that was not, he did not use that there. And he decided, well, I'm going to make this into a more of a grotesque creature to make it into a bat-like creature. And it was just something he had wanted to do since the early 60s and finally did it here in this movie. 
Uh, he says this was his favorite thing, and it, there was a creation scene. Like we see this uh, homunculus was kind of like a, a character in the movie. We yeah. see it throughout the movie. And so there's little shots of it different places throughout the movie. It's kind of, and, um, and so, but at one point, the first one is, this, is destroyed and the magician makes another one. And that scene, very well animated. And Harry, Ray Harry Osa said that was his favorite scene to animate because you see it coming to life. And it was similar to the birth of the Emir in 21 million miles to Earth. And so that is the homunculus. Now, the homunculus was uh, animated. There were some shots of it with a little model uh, a couple places, but the animated scenes with the homunculus took four minutes and 22 seconds. That's throughout the entire movie. There were different scenes throughout the movie until about halfway through the, the second one is killed. And again, that's 4% of the movie. There were 34 different setups, and some of those were fly. A lot of those were flying, so those are difficult. He has to have it on wires. He has to cover up the wires, light it in such a way that you can't see the wires. And those uh, 34 setups were broken up into 79 animation shots for the homunculus. Now, my number two, the figurehead. For me, most Harryhausen creatures are what I call cool. They have a cool quotient that's like, that is so cool. There's a handful of Harryhausen monsters. They're cool, but they're also frightening. They're scary. For example, Talos in Jason and the Argonauts. When Talos turns his head and looks down at uh, Hercules and Hylas, that is a scary moment when those blank eyes turn and look down. Yeah. And of course, Harryhausen's scariest creature medusa from clash of the titans i'm still getting i'm getting flashbacks man <laughs> <laughs> but this to me is also in those top three scariest of harryhausen creatures first of all the model is creepy it's got that blank stare that expressionless face and it's like a zombie coming out and in the movement's with the you know the magician is controlling it it's a wooden figurehead that comes to life and the magician's controlling it so it's not full control of itself so it really has and with that expressionless face and then they did it at night and this is some of the some of harry house's best night work it's very hard to do stop motion animation combining it with live action in a night scene because the night scene has to be well lit where you get a grainy effect and it, you know, Harry hasn't wanted to do the skeleton scene in J.C. Argonauts at night, but it just wouldn't work. So it's like in broad daylight. That's a scary scene, somewhat too. The skeleton scene in Seven Boys Sinbad was kind of a dark, but it was you know it was well lit. The dungeon they did it in, but this is really kind of at night, and it really adds to that kind of scary effect. Well, one thing that I read today, Harryhausen said that the hairdo of the figurehead, the hair going straight up was loosely based on The Bride of Frankenstein. So he liked those classic monsters, too. Another interesting thing about this scene, going back to the actors, there's a very brief look at an actor. His name is John Garfield Jr. And his real name was David Garfield, but that was the famous actor, John Garfield, who did a lot of great noir films. That was his son. And he hmm. did some acting. And he did, uh, and this was one of the films that he was in. Very short role, and, but he was the first victim. And really, one of the only people that we know gets killed in the movie from Sinbad's crew. Right. Now, the uh, animated figurehead 
the animation was two minutes and 43 seconds. That's 2.5% of the movie. There were only 14 setups, and those 14 setups were cut up into 43 shots. Now, right up to number one. Number one on the classic five Golden Voyage of Sinbad creatures. And that, for me, is Kali. And to me, this is one of Ray's top sequences uh, alongside the uh, skeleton scene. And to me, this is number two next to this. And sometimes I would consider it number one. They go back and forth. It depends what I saw last, like you like to say. <laughs> okay. This scene, to me, whenever this scene comes on, I jump up. During the sequence, I'm either Callie or Sinbad or Miklas Rosa conducting the orchestra. <laughs> Okay. I'm 56 years old, and I still feel like a kid when this scene comes on. Oh, that's awesome. I watched the movie today. It went through it, and I was like, I got to watch that again. And I play it back. I have studied this, and I'm telling you, even with the editing, I mean, when you watch it just one time for the first time, and Ray always said, that's why I made this. The movies weren't made to be studied. They were made to be watched in the movie theater, and then you go home, you're done with it. Right. But this scene, even the editing of it, there's no mistakes in it. It's, it flows. It was well choreographed, and it took them weeks to choreograph it. They'd had two fencers would be stand back to back to train the actors on how they were to shadow box and choreographed it exactly what was going to happen with the, the statue. For those who might not have seen the movie, which I doubt, with the six, you know, it's a six arm statue. I think editing and choreographed. And the music. This is where, wow, Nicholas Rosa really knocked it out of the park. I can hum this theme. I have it on my playlist. It's just a great cut. And it really captures the Eastern feel. It was like, you know, there's the Indian Hindu themes. You mm -hmm. know, it's, a, it's based on a Hindu god. And he really captured and it just really brings life to the scene. I just love this scene so much. The scene, uh, the animated parts are 3 minutes and 34 seconds. That's 3% of the entire movie. 20 setups divided into 66 shots. So he had a number of setups were, which were repeated, but of course he's cutting back and forth between uh, Sinbad, you know, close-ups of Sinbad with his sword, and then they go back to the same setup, cut to Sinbad. Cut. And, I, and again, I think it's a, uh, an issue where Okay, I'm going to do this setup. I'm going to do 10 shots with this setup. And it'll probably take me a day for each shot. But I can turn the lights off, go home, go to bed, come back, and keep on doing it. I was raised thinking, but I know I'm going to have a cut here with a close-up of a Sinbad with the sword. And that way, if there's any kind of change in the light color at all, it won't be noticed. And I was watching it again today. It's like, how those arms are so coordinated and so moving, six arms. We're amazed at the skeletons, the seven skeletons in Seven Voices Sinbad. But a lot of times in that scene, there's only two or one skeleton at a time. There's only seven skeletons of a few shots. Right. But this thing, all every shot, there's six arms and the head and the legs all coordinating. Uh, it's, it's just incredible to think how difficult. Trying to keep track, man. I just, I can't imagine it. Just trying to keep track of everything. Now, one of the things I've convinced, that probably it's probably been written down somewhere. I probably read it and I don't remember, but I really figured this out that I really think Ray probably did with the swordsmen and their practicing as they are rehearsing that he 
would do like a reference film and he probably had like a moviola there and he was kind of seeing how the swordsmen were and it kind of that kind of probably helped him just to, but to imagine trying to do it okay exactly how this is going to be without that it's like no that's impossible and i think that's one of his secrets he never wanted to share but it, that's to me it's like it has to be where he kind of had a reference what how do you reference a six-armed creature <laughs> you know they only had four arms being used and it's two guys strapped to each other back to back so it really doesn't capture so he did have to use his imagination this had to be extremely difficult to do but it's flawless you i've watched it over and over again and it's flawless and i'm forgetting and you know it starts out with a dance again ray's never coordinated anything to music maybe you know we have the dance of the snake woman in seven voyages sinbad but that really wasn't that much dancing it wasn't that much action but here you have six arms and they're moving and they're coordinated and they're the legs are moving now the head's moving. It's it's a really cool little dance that the creature does too. So those are the classic five creatures, and that's my classic five look at Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I would agree with almost everything that you had here. I think I might put the Hemonoculus uh, at number two, just because I really like it. I know it's not in there very long, but I really like it. It's just something kind of compact and cool about it. But you're absolutely right about Kelly. It's special, man. It's just something special about it. And it's really the highlight of the film because yeah. the centaur and the griffin are kind of a letdown. They're, they're well done. The models, when you compare the Sinbads, you know, and they, all the Sinbads had kind of the same thing. A, one giant monster, kind of an evil monster versus kind of a good monster, you know. So in Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, you had the Cyclops, which is iconic, which is a fantastic creature and mm -hmm. it had a fight with the dragon and that, and that fight was colorful and and fantastic as well i think the best harryhausen creature fight a mythical creature fight was from Sinbad and the tiger because that was very kinetic i think he did in that what he would have liked to have done in this one but really the griffin doesn't have much to do it kind of looks like a guy fighting his uh, German shepherd. It doesn't move like a cat or an eagle. And a centaur, I think that some of the action with Sinbad was good, but the fight scene with the griffin wasn't good. So it's, it's kind of a letdown. When, with the Cali sequence, it's just like, whoa, it's incredible. <laughs> it's so yeah. incredible. And, and it, the movie kind of goes a little bit downhill from there, and that's kind of one of its flaws, where like in Sinbad, the Eye of the Tiger, amongst its many flaws which mainly are dealing with the acting and the directing and thing but the animation he really pops you in the beginning with the ghoul scene which is the sword fighting scene but then the the fight with the trog versus the saber-toothed tiger is just like wow that's really fantastic kinetic exciting uh, and this one it was like oh man that sword fighting scene the cali scene wow that's the height you know, and, that, the, and that's up there with Seventh Voyage's Sinbad's skeleton scene or Jason and the Arcanaut's skeleton scene. But then you have another 15, 20 minutes of movie left, and it kind of is a letdown. And that's a little bit of a flaw in this movie. It's not horrible because those creatures are still good and they're still fun, but they're, they're just not as exciting. This is like a climax moment that comes in the middle of the movie. But boy, is it a fantastic climax, even though it's not the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, I was hoping if we have time, I know we've probably gone longer than you want this to be, but I was hoping to share with the people my encounters with Ray Harryhausen. I would love that. I would love that. Just to give you a background, I had been a Harryhausen fan since I was a kid when I understood, you know, I saw this movie being a Harryhausen fan in 1974 when Sinbad the Added Tiger came out. I was just like, that was like the longest year of my life from 1977 from January to May when the movie came out. It came out a week before Star Wars did. Oh, wow. Okay. In my town. Saw it in Eugene, Oregon. And those six months when I knew it was coming until it came, those are the longest six months of my life waiting for that thing to come. <laughs> I was so excited. And then, of course, Clash of Titans, I was, uh, how old was I then? 17 when that came out. It lost a little luster for me. I was, I was, I'm not the hugest fan of Clash of the Titans. I was always a fan of Harryhausen. Mm -hmm. Once Clash of the Titans was done, it was like there was nothing. I had no idea what was going on with him. I, there was no way of knowing. I uh, I heard late. I've heard later that he was doing conventions and stuff like that. But I just never knew about what was going on. And sometimes I'd look up and wonder: Is he still around? Is he still? Can he still be contacted? What do I do? Well, when the internet came out, it was like, whoa, man! And I found I made friends with internet people and stuff. And I started seeing that he was coming. And he came. He actually came to Pittsburgh when I was in Mexico at the time. So I couldn't go and see him, but I was like, I can't believe it. He was in Pittsburgh and he was down the road from where my dad used to live. I was like amazed. Oh, and I was no. like, maybe oh. someday I'll get to meet him. We'll zoom up to 2007. And I'm here in the border close to San Diego, about two hours, three hours from San Diego, California. And I see and hear that he's going to be at the Comic Con, the famous San Diego Comic Con. He's going to do a panel with Ray Bradbury and himself uh, we're, and him were going to be in a panel together. I got to go. Got my wife and daughter. Went <laughs> to San Diego Comic-Con. It's as crazy as you heard it is. Just wall-to-wall -wall people. Hard to get around. So I thought, well, in order to get a good seat, we have to go to the uh, conferences beforehand. So we went to two conferences beforehand in the same sala. And it was kind of cool because the one right before... The Harryhausen one was Supernatural, the TV show. And of course, that place filled up with teeny boppers and they were all sitting in the front row. Well, when that was done, all those teeny boppers left and left the front row open. So boom, Kenny's running up to the front row to meet and see for the first time Ray Harryhausen. Now, before this, they were going to have a signing for him and they gave out tickets because there's so many people that they sure. had, it was kind of like a lottery if you, when they had like free signings. You'd have to stand in line, and they give you a ticket. If your ticket had the magic symbol, a little black dot on it, then you were able to get an autograph. And so I got in the line for the Harryhausen autograph, and I got a magic ticket. And I was like, whoa, yes. So that was going to be after the, con the conference. So they did the conference, which was somewhat disappointing for me because Ray Bradbury, he likes to talk. And people were there to see him more than Ray Harryhausen, which I was kind of surprised with, but not many people asked him any questions. And Ray Bradbury, you got him started. He wouldn't stop. So it was mainly a Ray Bradbury conference with Ray Harryhausen sitting there laughing. Okay, So that was kind of a little bit of a disappointment. And then after that, they said, we're going to be at such and such a place for the autographs. If you have your ticket, come to such and such a place. So I go up there and I have a copy of Ray Harryhausen's book, the art of Ray Harryhausen. And I went up and I waited in line 
Ray Bradbury came and he started signing. No Ray Harryhausen. And I'm moving up and up and there's no Ray Harryhausen. And I'm like, what is going on? So there was some a staff member there, a volunteer. And I said, hey, Ray Harryhausen is supposed to be here. Why isn't he here? I'm, I'm here for Ray Harryhausen. I'm not really here for Ray Bradbury. She said, I don't know. But I said, he's supposed to be here. It is. And she went and checked for me. Oh, good. So I'm getting there and I'm getting closer and there's still no, no Ray Harryhausen. I'm like, what's going on? I get up to the front of the line and it's like, well, I got Ray Bradbury. I might as well get his autograph. So in this book, uh, Ray Harryhausen book, there's a picture of the lighthouse piece from the 20,000 fathoms. It's just, you know, here's the original model of the lighthouse mm-hmm. with the pieces broken off and everything. So I was like, well, that's the only thing from beast from 20,000 fathoms in this book. I'll open that up. <laughs> and I said, and Ray Bradbury drew a dinosaur next to the, fo- the lighthouse. Oh, that's so cool. It. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I know he's, he's famous and everything, but it's just like, I wasn't there for Ray Bradbury. I know that's I know that's a sin. I know that's heresy, but that's what I thought. I don't want to be here for Ray Bradbury. I want Ray Harryhausen. So I, <laughs> I got out. I got out. I was like, where is Ray Harryhausen? They said, well, you know what? He, he went and he was signing at this other place that was selling pictures that he had, you know, commissioned or that he had uh, licensed. So I went down to the dealer's room and there was Ray Harryhausen. He was talking to somebody. There was nobody around. And there was this lady there. And she's like, can I help you? And I was like, yeah, I came for Ray Harryhausen's autograph. And she says, well, he's done signing. <gasps> oh, no. Uh, you know what? I got the ticket. I waited in line. And I, I had prepared a letter for him, like a letter of appreciation I wanted to give to him. And she's like, well, no. And she was kind of kind of nasty. And I was like, well, you know what? You know so she said, well, let me ask. So she interrupted his producer, Charles H. Schneer, had passed away recently. So he was talking to his nephew. And he said, sure, I'll, I'll talk. So I was able to shake his hand. <sighs> I gave him the book. He signed the book for me. And I said, I have this letter that I wrote for you, just a, a appreciation of just sharing how he changed my life and made my life special. And I gave that to him. He took it, put it in his jacket pocket. And Aww. I said goodbye. I walked away, found my wife and daughter because they were somewhere else, and I found them, and I just started crying. I finally met my hero. I thought that was going to be the end of it. I mean, he was 80, what, he was 87 years old mm-hmm. then. I thought, he'll, I'll never get to see him again. 2008 rolls around. Thanks to the internet, I find out that he is coming to Santa Monica, California, for the 50th anniversary of Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Sign me up. I got in my car. It was a Sunday. I got in my car early Sunday morning, went by myself, drove to Los Angeles, California. He was going to be doing a signing at a bookstore that, again, was had his drawings that they were selling, that they would printed were selling. He was doing a signing of his new book there. And then they, was going to, they were going to show Seventh Voyage of Sinbad with a live Q&A. So wow. I, I got to the bookstore plenty early. I just hung out there. He arrived, and it was just like a fantastic time. Not a lot of people came at that time. Joan Taylor, who was in Earth versus Flying Saucers, 20 Million Miles to Earth, she was there. Very nice lady. She, she passed away shortly after this. Catherine Grant, Princess Parisa from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, was there. Very nice lady. Got her autograph. 
Patrick Wayne, Sinbad from Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger was there. Oh, wow. Got his autograph and was able to sit down next to Ray, uh, his handler in the United States, a, a very nice man named Arnold Krunart, took my picture with Ray Harryhausen. And I was able to get another, some more autographs from him. And it was just like a fantastic time. Uh, another guy, Steve Smith, who was Bernard Herman's biographer. He wrote a biography about Bernard Herman. I had a nice little talk with him because we're both Bernard Herman fans, obviously. Mm -hmm. Then I went over to the movie theater, which was right across the street. I was first in line. I said, I'm, I don't care about where I'm at. I don't care if I have to crane my neck to see the movie. I'm going to be close to Ray Harryhausen. So, yeah. I, so I went down the second row and the first row I saw the microphones I said well I'm just going to pick choose here and I sat down right in the middle and there's several people were going to be uh, talking or I, one of the uh, I think um, uh, 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 animator Randy Cook was going to be there and this, the Steve Smith and Catherine Grant and Ray Harryhausen his wife and Arnold Kernan were all going to be there commenting on the movie so I sat there and Ray Harryhausen was right to my left and in front of me was Princess Parissa herself, Catherine Grant. And it was just like fantastic. They started the movie and people just started peppering him with questions. And I asked him, you know, what did his wife think when she saw it? Because I didn't know anything about his personal life. It wasn't that much published until later on in his life, you know, those last days that he started publishing more about his life. And he's like, oh, I wasn't married yet. And it turned out he got married when he was in his 40s. And stuff like that. And I, and I was just like asking questions like when the Cyclops licked his lips. It's like, was that something you did to spur of the moment or did you plan that? Was that planned ahead? He's like, I can't remember. You know, a lot of the answers were, I can't remember. You know? <laughs> but it was just like <laughs> fantastic being there and watching Seventh Voyage of Sinbad with Ray Harryhausen. That's well, amazing. He's 88 now. That was his last trip to the United States. That's going to be it. I was riding on a cloud. I, that was fantastic. Then, 2010, 2009, they start announcing Ray Harryhausen's 90th birthday. They're going to do a big exhibition in London and a big party for Ray Harryhausen's 90th birthday. This is where it gets crazy, Derek. So okay. I thought, well, you know, yeah, we were doing okay financially. Maybe I could get going. My brother was living in England. Maybe I can... Uh, freeload off of him a little bit and go to this thing. So I started making plans. And then as, as they started getting more and more organized, it came out that, okay, the birthday celebration, the opening of the exhibition in the museum was going to be the 29th. And it was going to be by invitation only. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm making all these plans. And I think I might have even purchased my tickets because I was like, what am I going to do? I, am I going to cancel? I, I, I'm not invited. I'm not, how am I going to go? So I said, well, you don't know unless you ask. So I wrote an email to Tony Dalton, who is Ray Harryhausen's friends. He helped write several of his books. And I said, you know, Mr. Dalton, I was planning to come. And I found that it was by invitation only. I don't know that but I, I just was wondering is is there any way how can I get an invitation a couple weeks later I go to my mailbox what do I get an invitation an invitation I'm just like ignore I, I'm a fan I'm a huge fan I'm not like a collector type fan I'm not like this super fan who watches a Harryhausen film every day I'm not worthy I'm not worthy you know 
but I got an invitation and I was just like, wow. Now, I was going to go to my first month, this 2010, my first full Monster Bash. The Monster Bash was going to end the Sunday and the, the party, the thing was the 29th, was the Monday. So it's just like this year. The Monday was the 29th. And so I was going to be at the Monster Bash and I thought, I don't know any of these people, but I'd like to do give something to Ray Harryhausen. And I made this book. I got these pictures and I asked uh, Monster Bash bashers through their website. They used to have like a forum and all that and told them, hey, you know, I'm going to send me some pictures. I want to make a book and then I want you guys to sign it when I'm at the Monster Bash. And while I was at the Bash, I went and got people to sign it. And, you know, some people are like, are you kidding me? You're going to go to Ray Harryhausen's birthday party? Who are you? You know, no one knew me. I didn't know anybody, but I was like getting people to sign this thing. And then I was like, well, I'm going to go into the dealer's room. And I got signatures of all the stars they had there. So I got Ann Robinson. She did it for free. Bird Eye Garden, who I feel like was trying to compete with Ray Harryhausen in the day. <laughs> he made me pay sure. for it. But I got Bird Eye Gordon's uh, signature. I got Alex Gordon's signature. Uh, I got all the star signatures. And they all, you know, said something nice about Ray. And I had pictures in it and everything. So I made this little book. And then Sunday, I left the Monster Bash. You know, everything had to work perfect. I was going to fly from Pittsburgh to New York, New York to London. Once I got into London, I was taking a subway to the place, which is near Big Ben and the big giant Ferris wheel they have there. And I was, I was going to get there. If anything had gone wrong, if any delay at all, I would have missed the dumb thing. But everything just went perfectly. I got into England. I got to the place, to make a long story short, I got to the place. I was one hour early. I invited a guy from a Ray Harryhausen fan that I met through the internet who lived in England. I said, hey, I, I got an invitation for two people. Any of you guys want to come? And this guy said, I'll be there. I said, if you could come. Just take pictures for me. I'm going to give you my camera if you take some pictures for me. We got there. <laughs> he was there early. I was there early. We got to see a, the ribbon cutting. Ray came. He was in a wheelchair with his wife. And uh, she was in a wheelchair. And they came. They did the ribbon cutting. We actually went in and saw all the exhibition. And then uh, Tony Dalton came and said, wait a minute. What are you guys doing here? It's not open yet. Oh, okay. Well, we'll leave. You know? But we actually got to see it before everyone else. And we're taking pictures and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got there. The ribbon cutting happened. And then it was just like a party. And who comes there? Who was there? Caroline Monroe, Martine Bieswick, John Landis, Peter Jackson, Rick Baker. It was like it was like all these big time people that I grew up, you know, all these monster kids that did good were at this thing. And I, and I was just like, I couldn't believe it. And I and we were I was just hobnobbing around. I got a picture with. There was a plate a point when Martine and Caroline were like standing together with Ray, and I was like, and I was my friend. I said, "Here, take my picture." And I went behind Ray, who was in his chair, and the the, the two ladies were like sitting there talking. And he said, "Hey, girls!" And they lifted they lifted their heads, and I'm standing behind Ray, and they took a picture. So I have, uh, and I got that signed by the two girls. Um, there were stars <laughs> there that I didn't know that were there like uh, the guy one of the guys from jason the argonauts was there and i didn't recognize him because he's he was really young in the movie and now he's really old i didn't know who he was but and i was just like and i was starstruck more with caroline monroe and uh, yeah. and martin beeswick than i was with peter jackson 
And but I was like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm standing next to the guy who made Lord of the Rings, King Kong, and all that. Rick Baker, you know, I couldn't believe it. And then afterwards, and I was like starving to death. And afterwards, uh-huh. they had this like big, big party, free food. I was like, what? I'm so I'm eating all these fancy, you know, uh, finger snacks and and hobnobbing, and I'm talking with Caroline Monroe. And I was like, oh, I was just at the monster bass. And she started, and, and Martine Bezik was there too. And she's like, oh, Martine, you should go to that conference. Said, oh, yeah. Oh, and as I was telling him, oh, yeah, you'll love it there. The people will just love the stars. It's a family type atmosphere. And Caroline was encouraging. So I think that I helped Josh Kennedy get his relationship started with. Martine Beeswick because I, I, I'm, I'm on board with that. I agree. <laughs> and, and it was just, and I, and then John Landis was just standing there. And uh, so I went up to him and I was like, you know, I read about your movie schlock in FM 99 and I've been wanting to see it. I haven't been able to find it. And he goes, Oh, that movie is really crappy. If you find a bootleg version, go ahead and buy it. Don't worry about giving me any money. Go ahead and buy a bootleg version. They're out there. You'll find it. So, you know, I, I, so, so I was like, I can't believe this. I'm talking to John Landis. I talked to Ray Harryhausen's daughter. It turns out she was born, you know, we were the exact same age. And uh, she was really nice. I got it, and they gave out a book. So it was like they were selling a, a brand new book. And Tony Dalton bought the, brought the box, opened the box, and we got the first copies of this. It was like a photo album book. And I got that signed by all these people. And it was just like fantastic. And then I was able to give Ray Harryhausen the book I had done, got a picture with him and me giving him the book uh, on behalf of the Monster Bashers. And it was a fantastic time. And it was one of those moments where it's like, I don't deserve this. Why am I so loved that this would happen to me so perfectly well? You know, and it was just a fantastic time. so cool. I'm glad you let me share that. I know this probably went into three hours and you wanted a short show. <laughs> it's okay. You know what? No, this is totally worth it. Plus, now we know who we have to thank for getting Martine Beswick to the bash and getting her connected with Josh. So somehow or other, you've become a matchmaker in all of this. Yeah, man. So <laughs> I talked I talk to Josh about it. He's like, well, I met her earlier, but it's like he really, he did like his first little movie with her and all that at the bash. So that's where they really connected and got married that's right so that yeah it's, it's it's all you it's all you and it is it's it's it, it was it's a fantastic thing and it's just it's something i've always I've, i like sharing with people that would yeah be fascinated with that and i've heard other stories where people have actually been able to he was very welcoming for fans people have gone to his house vince and mary rotolo from the b movie cast they actually got to go to his house I was there in London when I was 16, and he was probably making Clash of the Titans at the time. I probably could have gone and, and seen him, what I've heard later, but I was one of those people It's like, oh, you can't bother stars. You know, I was so super shy about that kind of thing. Sure. But by all the stories I hear, he was very nice. And the times that I was able to meet him, even though he was, you know, that day, that last day I met, I saw him, was he was 90 years old that day. But he was just a gentleman and a nice guy, and everyone praised him for that. And always laughing and always joyful and just wonderful people. I have heard that he was just amazing to have met. And you've told me this story off mic, so I'm glad you shared it here so the listeners can hear it too. Because it's just fantastic. And the encounters that some of us have been so lucky to have, that is just a heck of a story, man. I love it. Yeah, and I, I I know there are people out there that you know maybe didn't have a chance to meet him and all that, and um, I hope 
I hope they don't feel jealous. I was able to meet them, but they, they can share in the joy. Of, sure. You know, anyone that meets a star or something and it gets these kind of opportunities. Um, sometimes it's like, oh, I wish I could have happened to me. But at the same time, we can rejoice and say, hey, you know, that's great that they were able to do that. And I'm, I'm able to share in part of that joy. So it's thank you for allowing me to share those things because I like to share with people that might appreciate and would feel good about hearing that story. <laughs>